Let's pray again together. Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you that it's true, it's right. I pray now for the power of your spirit that he would come and help me preach your word. And I pray that your word would produce an abundant good harvest in us, Father. Teach us your wisdom through your word. Mold us, shape us more and more into the image of the Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, so today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. We'll be looking at this really remarkable story. It's a very Hollywood, action-packed story about how Jesus is going to confront this large demonic force uh, that inhabited this man, this Gentile man, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Right before our passage that we read, Jesus demonstrates his authority as God's Son by calling this raging storm that he and the disciples faced in the Sea of Galilee. So today in our passage, we're going to see something similar to what he's really just done. He's going to demonstrate his authority as God's son again, only this time he's going to conquer this raging, demonic host of demons that was occupying a man. So we'll divide our passage today into two parts. First, we're going to talk about the mark of evil on this particular man that we see in our story. And then in part two, we're going to talk about Jesus' defeat of evil. So the mark of evil, then the defeat of evil. And before we dive straight into our passage today, I want to very briefly talk about what does the Bible teach us about Satan and demonic spirits. When it comes to this subject, there is really a whole cacophony of competing and contradicting voices that creates a world of confusion for us. Our surrounding culture, even maybe the wider evangelical church circles that we run in, would have us ignore or belittle or sensationalize or overemphasize the work of Satan and the demonic realm that is present in our world. Just think about the contrasts, right, in our culture that we, we see everywhere. Think about the difference between the iconic cultural movie like The Exorcist or the old SNL skit uh, of Dana Carvey's Church Lady, right, where everything is blamed on Satan. The former uh, of these examples would have you so freaked out and terrified of demonic possession that maybe you sleep with your lights on in your room for a few days after you see the exorcist. And in the latter example, we, we have a comedian depict for us religious people as people who detect satanic influence everywhere around us in ways that are hilariously absurd. But if you pay attention to what the scriptures teach on the realm of Satan, and the demonic, you're going to get a very different picture from either one of these extremes. Uh, What the Bible says about Satan and the influence of the demonic, it should be really disturbing, I think, to unbelievers, and it should be a great comfort uh, to us as God's people. The Bible does not give us descriptions of satanic influence to traumatize us so that we sleep with the lights on. Instead, it gives us these vivid pictures of the work of evil, really so that we can better understand our world in light of the victory that King Jesus has secured over Satan and the demonic realm. Satan is one of the earliest characters in the scriptures who shows up on the stage of the biblical story. And you can really think about the fact that the very first gospel promise that we see in all the Bible has to do with God's promise given to our first parents in the garden. A promise that a son of Adam is going to one day come who will be a champion for God's people and finally deliver this fatal blow to Satan. 
So that really tells us something really important, that we should really expect a significant part of the Bible to really be about how God is going to triumph over Satan and the work of evil in our world. Okay, so if we had to summarize in like 30 seconds or less, what does the Bible teach us on this subject of Satan and the demonic? What would we say? Here's my best attempt, my one-sentence summary. I would say this about what does the Bible teach us about Satan in the realm of the demonic? I would say that people are both victimized by Satan and evil, but they're also willing participants in, in his work. We see this in our passage. We see this in places throughout the Gospels where Jesus casts demons out that evil clearly goes after people to exploit weakness and vulnerability. Just a little later, after our passage in Mark 9, we see Jesus cast a demon out of a young boy, and this boy had suffered really greatly as a result of evil's presence in his life. You can think about Satan clearly seeks to exploit Eve in the garden, right? Because his tactic is to choose to divide and conquer the man and the woman. Think about what Paul says in 2 Corinthians when he says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel um, and the glory of Christ. Think about a passage in Peter, right, that many of us might have heard about. The, the devil is described as this roaring lion who's actually roaming about, seeking to harm people, to devour people. We can see the truth that Satan victimizes people, even when you read the Gospels and think about the language that's used to describe the effects of the, de- the demonic in our world. We read about how uh, evil uh, leaves people troubled or oppressed in some way. In many of these instances, clearly people are passive recipients of something that is demonic. But other passages as well, we can think about many others, give us the conclusion that's very clear that people clearly cooperate with Satan and evil's agenda, and we bear responsibility for making these demonic alliances. This is what Adam and Eve did, right? They were both victims and also people that made an agreement of sorts with Satan. Think about in John or in Luke's Gospel that Satan, we're told, enters into Judas, right? So Satan goes into him, but clearly Judas is someone who explicitly chose to partner with the demonic. Paul in Ephesians says that unbelievers are people who are dead in their sin, but they're also described as people who are following the prince of the power of the air. That's another description for Satan. Uh, the Apostle John says in his first epistle that a life devoted to sin is really a life devoted to the devil, is what he says. So in our passage today, it's, it's difficult to know exactly which category of satanic activities at work in this demon-possessed man, whether he's a victim or whether he's a willing participant, or some kind of combination of the two. But we really are on safe grounds biblically and theologically by saying that really every sinner experiences both, right? We experience the work of Satan and evil where we are victimized, where evil comes to us, and also where we are willing participants in evil. It's also really important to see that the unbelieving world is described as being under the power and influence of the devil, but God's people are those who have been set free from Satan and evil. Okay, all that's a bit of a long-winded introduction. Let's jump into the passage we read now in Mark chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 20. So if you're reading along in Mark's gospel, there's several things about our passage that really should stand out and grab your attention right away. 
First is the length of this story, just how long of a description Mark gives us of what happens here. If you read Mark's Gospel, he really gives us the abbreviated version of a lot of stories we read about in both Matthew and Luke. Uh, Mark's Gospel is the shortest of all the Gospels, and his action usually moves at a very quick pace. So Jesus' baptism in Mark is only three verses. His his temptation is only two verses, whereas Matthew and Luke are going to spend a lot more time uh, giving us the details of those events. But it's interesting that in Mark, when we get to this story about how this man is overcome by this large demonic force, he really does hit the brakes. And he gives us really the longest account of this story of anywhere that you find in the Gospels. So it's clear that Mark wants us to pay attention uh, to this story. He thinks it's something worthy of our time, and we have to listen to the details that he gives us. Second, if you read Mark's Gospel, Mark has already uh, at least six times already clearly alluded to or explicitly described how Jesus has come to deal with Satan and the demonic. So right away, Mark wants wants us to see there's something really important in our passage that we have to pay attention to. All right, so after um, our first few verses, right away in our first few verses, we're told that um, after Jesus calms this raging storm, he's going to come out of this region on the Sea of Galilee called the Gerasenes. Historians aren't really sure where exactly this is. I think maybe it's the modern-day town of Cursa. Uh, And Mark tells us that as soon as Jesus gets out of the boat, he's met by this man with an unclean spirit. And then what Mark does next is really give us these poignant details about the mark of evil on this man that Jesus encounters. So what I want us to do now is think about together how Mark's description of the presence of Satan in this man's life, it really does teach us some broader truths about uh, how evil's at work in our own world and how evil even touches our own lives. Several things about the mark of evil that I want us to see here. First, what you see in our passage is that evil is a negative kind of energy with this deceptive kind of strength. It's a negative kind of energy with this this deceptive kind of strength. Do you see this? Mark says multiple times that this demonic force that he faced gave this man enormous power, enormous strength. He says in verses 3 and 4 that the local people of this region had failed, they tried and failed to subdue this guy. Apparently they thought he was a threat to himself and other people. And so at several points, Mark says, they tried to put chains and shackles on the man, but he was so strong that he just ripped him into pieces. Mark emphasizes the enormous strength by mentioning twice that basically nobody in the region was strong enough to overpower and restrain uh, the man possessed by these demons. The strength of the demons, again, is emphasized later in verse 9 when, when Jesus is going to ask this, this man, what is your name? He replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. A legion in the first century, it would have referred to this large Roman military unit, something maybe similar to like our modern day brigade in the army. So a Roman legion could have been anywhere from like five to 6,000 soldiers. So again, the idea is that Jesus encountered this group of demons that were this terrifying, occupying force inhabiting this man. And we see that evil uh, was clearly a power that this man was experiencing in a way that weakened him and actually destroyed him. It took life away instead of strengthening it and sustaining it. So there's a real sense here this man appears really strong, but in fact, he's a slave to something that's really destructive. 
You can see this truth about the presence of evil in a a variety of ways in our own world. Think about the fact that there's a certain kind of restless energy that so often comes with Satan and evil's influence in your own life. Think about the experience of evil's work in speaking to you in, in your fear that you feel, the anxiety that you feel. Evil speaks to you, doesn't it? Through that voice of fear telling you that you are out of control. God is not there, and the future is going to be very bleak for you. Evil gives us this negative energy that that fuels your sleepless nights. It drives us to frantically work and pursue ambition. But its strength is going to leave us exhausted. It's going to leave us overwhelmed and depleted. Think about the restless force of evil's work that compels people in addiction, leading somebody to recklessly pursue the next fix regardless of the cost or the consequences. Again, there's an energy at work, right, in that dynamic that really destroys life instead of giving it. It's an energy that sells people the deception that life and strength are found in something that ultimately is going to lead to death and all kinds of self-destruction. Think about the influence of evil in your own life, when pride begins to be that voice that, that you hear. Think about how pride makes us feel so strong. It's this illusion of a self-produced value and worth you want to establish by comparing yourself to somebody else. But again, there's enormous deception here, right? Pride in reality is the very thing that makes us so spiritually weak in ways that we normally don't see. Our sinful anger as well, right? It just makes you feel so strong, to give in to fleshly anger. But it's going to destroy good things in your life. It's going to push the very people away who love you the most. So sin and evil are really always seeking to convince us that they're going to give you something for your benefit that will strengthen you, but all the while they're going to deceive you about the price that you have to pay. Okay, What else do you see about the mark of evil in this man's life? Secondly, this is what we also see. You see that evil pushes this man towards self-destruction. This is one of the most haunting images of our passage, isn't it? That this man has made his home amongst death. Mark says he lives in a graveyard. He lives among the tombs. His only companions are rotting corpses, which is a really a powerful picture of his own spiritual state. This man has made death his home, and he really embodies a kind of living death, a person whom evil is really steadily driving him towards this goal of self-destruction. So you see that not only in the fact that he lives among death, that evil is driving him to harm himself, right? We're told he cuts himself with stones. You get a very clear picture of this. At the very end of the passage, when we see that Jesus sends the demons into the pigs, and then what do they do? They rush headlong into the sea to die. So death clearly is the end game in the work of Satan and evil in the life of this man. And it works the same way in our world as well. And so we see that God's work of redemption involves coming to rescue people from the self-destruction, right, that evil is always driving us towards. And again, you see how this truth about evil plays itself out in in our own lives in a variety of ways as well. The voice of evil for many of us may not drive you, right, to to inflict pain on yourself. Um, But evil seems to harm us in in another way. Evil wants to drive you to a slow death, a death by a thousand cuts approach. 
Satan and evil and our, their presence are always seeking to accuse us, condemn us. It's the voice that speaks to, speaks to us in the crippling guilt and the shame. So you begin to feel despair that God could ever be at work in your life for something good. What evil wants to do is it wants you to turn on yourself so that you don't even see that it's the hand holding the very knife that wants to harm you. And I see this in a, in a variety of, of ways when I do ministry with people. So evil's presence in, in some of even our lives may look like something as dark as thoughts about hurting yourself um, or taking your life. If that describes your struggle in any way, I would urge you to see that Jesus wants life for you and not death. And that there's people in your life who you can talk to that will listen and will care. So Satan understands really that his time is relatively short. His defeat is certain. So he's out to drive us towards destruction and do as really as much damage as possible before his final removal from the earth. And what else do we see about the mark of evil in this man's life? Here's the next thing I want us to see. That evil produces enormous misery in the lives of people. You can see the man's misery in a variety of ways. Notice that first he's alone. He's isolated. Satan and evil's work is always antisocial. It destroys loving and caring relationships. And this can be true even when you're in close proximity to people, but you're still very relationally disconnected from them. Satan does not want to have his work uncovered within the context of a loving, caring relationship. He wants to do what he's doing in the dark, in secret, in hiding away from people who have the wisdom and the strength to detect his work and to confront him. Notice also that this man is in an enormous pain, right? We're told that day and night among the tombs on the mountains, he's crying out. He's cutting himself with these stones. You get the picture that this man's pain was relentless, something that produced all this emotional turmoil and agony in his life. The misery that this demonic force inhabiting this man produced can be seen also in the ways that it had stripped him of his dignity as a human being. Satan and evil had reduced this man to an animal-like creature that lives like a wild dog, someone that lives alone. He howls in the night. Later when Jesus heals the man, we're told that when the people of the nearby village show up, they find him clothed in his right mind. So that tells us that previous to Jesus coming to set him free, this man was naked or barely clothed at all. So again, you see the work of evil in stripping away the dignity and the humanity that this man was meant to bear as, as an image bearer of God. Think about the fact, what, you, what would you have felt if you were here this day and you saw this take place between Jesus and this man? What would you feel? Likely terror. Fear to see this, this incredible demonic force in front of you. But if you could endure that kind of fear, think about what would happen if you could just look at the person in front of you, right? Face to face. What, what else would you think and what else would you feel? Would you see his deep loneliness? All the ways that evil had exiled him from a life of relationships, a joyful life of, in connection to other human beings. Would you see his pain? Would you see his agony in his face? The ways that he was crying out for relief and for peace and for comfort, and yet he, he couldn't find any relief from his pain. People of God, listen, the appropriate response when we get around other sinners 
to bear the mark of evil is to feel sadness, to feel brokenness, that something glorious here was was here but now it's gone, it's lost. Often we can begin to talk about the effects of evil in someone's life by first recognizing their pain and their misery. And you can acknowledge that with empathy. But plenty of people in our own city, maybe plenty of people in our own lives that have largely destroyed their own life and are struggling to know how to make sense of the mess that they find themselves in. A mess that they may not see that they're largely responsible for. Does their mess involve willing participation in something that is evil? Yes, most likely. But listen, we can begin to speak God's words of life and the need for repentance and faith to broken people by first acknowledging the pain and the suffering that they have undergone because of the presence of evil in their life. It's really been my experience that when people know that you see their pain, they're really much more likely to have ears to hear about their sins and their need to repent of their participation willingly and the demonic evil things that have happened in their life. Okay, let's move on now and talk about the second part of our story that we see. Talked about the mark of evil. Let's talk now about Jesus' defeat of evil. Really the only thing in our story that outpaces these vivid, tragic details of the demonic effects on this man is Jesus' power that he displays over this demonic force. Jesus demonstrates his overwhelming power as the Son of God, first by he's going to defeat the evil force itself, and then he's going to transform the man that is there. Let's quickly look at both of these actions that Jesus is going to accomplish. Notice what you see starting in verse 6. We're told that when the demon-possessed man sees Jesus from afar, he runs to Jesus right away and he falls down. Notice that there's no cosmic duel that takes place here. right? Jesus and this demonic force don't wrestle and fight together. Then Jesus emerges triumphant, right? like some scene from Carmen's The Champion. Jesus merely just shows up and the very presence of evil surrenders. They understand that they have no way to resist, that they have met their match, and this will not be a fair fight. This tells us that despite what we so often hear and feel about the work of evil in our world, God and Satan and his forces, they are never on a level playing field. Um, Satan and and God um, are not on the same level. The Lord Jesus has come to defeat evil, and his authority can't be compared in any way to what evil does in our world. You see this in passages like Revelation 19 and 20, we read earlier in our service. Passages describe how Jesus is going to come and God is going to defeat Satan and evil in this one swift final act of judgment that's going to come for us. Notice also that as soon as Jesus shows up, right away he immediately confronts this legion of demons. This is one of several examples of Jesus and the Gospels. Uh, where we see that he's going to openly and directly confront the presence of Satan in the lives of people. And you see that over and over again in the Gospels, that Jesus is always about drawing evil out of hiding into the open. If you remember a few chapters earlier, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus goes to the synagogue, and then right away when he shows up uh, amongst God's people, this demon-possessed man shows up. In our passage, Jesus is going to come ashore where there's a cemetery, and then right away the, de- the demonic force uh, shows up. 
So you get the impression in the Gospels that Satan likes to lurk in the background in places where people may not immediately be aware of his presence. But whenever Jesus shows up, Satan and these demonic forces, they come out of hiding right away. And they're immediately confronted and defeated by Jesus. And so listen, because we are united to Jesus and share in his victory over Satan and evil, then we should expect that a significant part of participating in God's advancement of his kingdom throughout the world involves this aspect of drawing Satan and demonic destruction out into the open, out into the light. Because we are no longer darkness, but now we are children of light, like Paul says in Ephesians, this means we should be about exposing the work of Satan and evil everywhere we find it. So what Paul says, and he says we are to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. We can do it in all kinds of ways. In a really simple but profound way, you do it whenever you confess your sins here together and outside of this building. We do this by courageously being willing to go into our corrupt world that's been broken by evil and unmask the ways that Satan has really seduced people. And we should be ready to do this everywhere. If Jesus exposed and confronted demonic influence when he was gathered at church with God's people, then we can be prepared to do the same. When Jesus went out into the world and exposed and confronted demonic influences, uh, then we too should be ready to do this, right? Wherever we go, we expect that evil is there and God's going to help us bring it into the light. Following Jesus and his kingdom mission means that we go out into the world, right? And we can confront evil wherever we find it, whether it's in our schools or our families or our government or our political institutions. Following Jesus means we participate in his ongoing work of defeating and undoing the work of evil in someone's life. And because we've been united to the risen Jesus who has conquered Satan, we don't run from evil things. We don't run from the influence and the presence of evil in our own heart or in the lives of anybody else. We've been given great power and boldness to do this, again, because you belong to the Lord Jesus and you bear his name. Whenever we encounter evil in our world, you're never doing this alone but you're doing it with the power and the presence of Jesus at our side. Because we are so sure and we are so confident the Lord has ultimately defeated the power of evil, we are emboldened and strengthened to go into a deeply broken world and get our hands dirty and confronting the many messes that evil creates in our world. Okay, let's move on in our passage. So what else happens when Jesus shows up uh, in this scene? And we meet this demon-possessed man. Well, Mark tells us that he, the demons cry out in anguish. They say to Jesus, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Can you hear the fear and what this demonic force says when it confronts Jesus? In the same account in Matthew's Gospel, the demons ask Jesus, Have you come to torment us before the time? This question in Matthew's Gospel, the demons almost act surprised to see Jesus, thinking that maybe he's gotten a little ahead of schedule. And they say this because in the New Testament it's very clear that Jesus' death and resurrection was God's definitive demonic exorcism of his creation. We can always be assured that the power of Satan and evil have been broken in our world because Jesus triumphed over these things in his death and his resurrection. 
Jesus will say this himself about his own death in John's Gospel. Just a few days before his crucifixion, he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Paul will say the same thing in Colossians 2. He says, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. Notice also that right away, this legion of demons, they know exactly who Jesus is. Isn't that interesting? They immediately proclaim the truth about his identity. That he's the son of the most high God. You see this all throughout the Gospels. You see Satan's demons regularly recognize who Jesus is, and they're going to proclaim the truth about who he is as God's son. The book of James will tell us something very similar. It says, look, even the demons believe and shudder. It tells us something very important. That evil is not primarily an intellectual problem. right? A problem about someone having faulty ideas about God that can just be corrected if you just have the right sophisticated kind of argument. Rather, Satan and evil are the, a problem that centers around a refusal to submit to and follow the truth. So what else does Jesus do? After this legion proclaims to Jesus who he is, Jesus asks him his name. And then Mark tells us in verse 10 that they beg Jesus not to be sent out of this geographic location that they were in. Instead, they request to be sent into these pigs. And so we're told that with Jesus' permission, the demons leave the man and they enter into this large group of pigs that immediately rush down the hillside and they drown in the sea. Again, what's emphasized here is Jesus' absolute authority. The demons can only go where Jesus allows. They have no ability to even move apart from Jesus granting them the permission to do so. So really what Jesus does in this dramatic, climatic scene or our passage is give us really a preview of the end of time when evil is going to be forever destroyed and banished from our creation. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on earth has dealt Satan and evil this definitive fatal blow. So now they're, they're like an army, an enemy army that's been defeated in this decisive battle that essentially has made the outcome of the war certain and inevitable. But as the army retreats, it's still going to harm people and seek to steal and kill and destroy. And so Jesus, as a one-man army, what he does, he shows up and completely annihilates this demonic force in a way that makes us think about the future. The day when he's going to come again, he's going to remove every last trace of Satan and evil from our world. And this is the day we're really living for, isn't it? This is the day we're longing for. The day when the misery of evil and the work of death and decay, it's going to be a thing of the past. And you're going to be able to live the life you were made for. A life where you'll never again feel the effects of addiction or divorce or abuse or broken relationships. A life where the most recent news in your city will never again be the tragedy of violence or murder or crime. Instead, the only news we will receive will be a deeper understanding of the goodness and love of the living God. A life where you will never again be tempted by evil. You will never again feel the pull of evil on your own heart. It's going to be a life where you bask in the eternal joy of Jesus' conquest over our greatest enemy. 
And if we are so certain that this coming day is, is going to come for us when the Lord Jesus completely destroys evil from our world, then listen, this means we fear no evil even in the present right now. No matter how fierce the spiritual battles that you face. As we walk through the many valleys of the shadows of spiritual death in our world, we fear no evil because the Lord Jesus is with you. And He is for you. And He is the one who already has overcome Satan and evil. Okay, so we've seen how Jesus demonstrates His authority by defeating Satan and evil in our passage. Now let's talk very quickly about what does He do in the restoration of the man who is possessed. We don't know this man's name. But I think it's very likely we're going to meet him in heaven and um, talk to him more about it. And what we get, we're given in this passage is this remarkable before and after portrait of when he meets Jesus. What we see is Jesus restored dignity to this man who'd been reduced to this subhuman existence, who'd been stripped of his dignity and his value because of the mark of evil in his life. Mark mentions to us in verse 15 that these herdsmen who had witnessed this whole incident, they quickly, they're going to run to the nearest village. And they'll begin to tell people what's going to happen. So you get the sense that word begins to travel very quickly and people are going to come out to see this thing for themselves. They go out to see this living, walking, talking miracle that is this man who was formerly controlled and destroyed by, by this demonic force. So when they show up, what do they find? Mark says that instead of finding the debasing humiliation of the presence of evil, they find a man who is clothed, who's in his right mind. They find a man who's been restored to the dignity and design that God created him for. And what they really discover is a new disciple of Jesus, someone who's become really an effective evangelist in God's kingdom. In verse 18, Mark says this man is now someone who's magnetically drawn to Jesus, someone who has a deeper hunger for life instead of death. And you see that in him begging to be with Jesus. He wants to be with Jesus. He doesn't want Jesus to leave. And Jesus, instead of allowing the man to come with him, he says, look, you need to stay put right where you are, and you need to tell people how much the Lord has done for you and how he's shown mercy to you. This final scene in our story tells us something really crucial. That's that transformed people make the best evangelists because they have a story to tell. As we begin to close our time in God's Word, what I want us to see is that's always true for you as well. All of us who belong to God's people, you've been transformed by the work of Jesus in ways that are no less profound, in ways that are no less dramatic than the story you read about today. And people of God, you have a story to tell. You have a story to tell your friends and your family and your neighbors and your coworkers. A story about how God has set you free from being enslaved to the power of evil and how he's pardoned you for willingly participating in the work of Satan. You have a story that's defined primarily by God giving you mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit. People of God, do you believe for yourself that that's your story? That is your life. Will you proclaim that story to a world that daily feels the effects of evil and needs to hear good news? Let's pray together. Father, we are very grateful. Uh, We are overwhelmed by the mercy and the kindness of the Lord Jesus and what he's done for us. 
Father, I pray that you would encourage us as we go. Would you strengthen us um, for the battles that we all face? And would you encourage us with the hope we have only in the Lord Jesus, that he is the one who has gone ahead of us, and he has conquered evil in a decisive way. Father, fill us with strength and hope um, as we go out into the world that needs good news about what the Lord Jesus has done and about how the Lord Jesus really is making all things new. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.